Greetings, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Today is July the 2nd of the year 2015 on Thursday in the early evening. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to let you know how I'm about to share this message with you. There's a scripture that says, if any man minister, let him minister. Or if any man speak, pardon me, let him speak as the oracles of God. I believe that's in 1 Peter chapter 4. I will seek to speak as the oracles of God this message. That means that I will facilitate and allow the Spirit of God to rise up within me, to speak the words that are coming by the Spirit of God that are not merely my words. In other words, I will seek to speak prophetically. As it says in Revelations chapter 19, when the angel addressed the apostle John, not to prostrate himself before him. He said this, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren, the prophets. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worship that the spirit of prophecy flows. With utterances that are coming, not merely from our own soul and spirit, but out of the Holy Spirit, we are carried beyond ourselves. So my prayer is that I would be in the Spirit as I give this message, that it may come forth in the demonstration and power of God's Spirit, that it would not be merely intellect, but it would be anointed. As Christ said, the words I speak are spirit and life. To facilitate doing this, I take my meditations on the Word of God. I spend approximately half an hour meditating on a chapter almost every day of the week, except probably Sunday. And then, after meditating, I also, in that half hour, make some brief notes. And then I will preach immediately after, as I'm about now, on the passage I received today, which is Luke chapter 8. I receive these chapters by the casting of lots where there's an equal possibility of any chapter coming forth. I trust in the sovereignty of God because I walk in holiness. In the light as he is in the light, these things do work. But if it becomes light in a game and a person is not walking right with God, then you could end up doing things with wrong influences that could even be divination. So I'm going to just now briefly mention to you what I received this week. Today I received Luke chapter 8, which I believe is a good chapter, is the theme chapter about what I'm about to share. Before I read Luke chapter 8, I briefly want to go through the various passages I received this week. Starting on this last Saturday, June the 27th, I received Luke chapter 11, which talks about prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and emphasizes the importance of importunity and also talks about the casting out of demons and deliverance. On Monday, I received Hosea chapter 1. Briefly, I mentioned here that it, it is about the nation of Israel in a state of apostasy. And I said it is the pride of self-sufficiency that must be broken in order for a nation and an individual to be open to receive the mercy of God. 
so that their lives are sown into God's destiny and purpose, and they are saved from hell. So it's the pride of self-sufficiency that must be broken. And so we have a discussion in Hosea of how Israel and her apostasy, like the prodigal son, is cornered by God to a place where she has nowhere to turn in her own self-sufficiency. And her pride is broken, and she begins to recognize the greatness of her need of the mercy of God and of his mercy towards them as they repent in the hour of trial in the valley of Achor, which is the valley of trouble. Now, on Tuesday, I received Luke chapter 15, which is about the story of the prodigal son, which we're all familiar with, which is basically the same thing I just mentioned, where God brings people to the place where their own ways of independence and rebellion and self-sufficiency are cornered. and exposed for their deception and utter futility. On July the 1st, which is also Canada Day, I received again, amazingly, Hosea chapter 2. Just two days before, I received Hosea chapter 1. And I made a brief paragraph on this, which says, when God's people commit adultery against him with a love for the world system of self-worship, God will corner them with severe judgment that they might come to true repentance like the prodigal son. Then they will know the greatness of God's mercy and his love and be bonded to him in love forever. They will no longer, they will no longer have a self-delusional, idolatrous perception of God as merely a master over them but will perceive God as their husband. And of course, in Hosea chapter 2, you have this statement in verse 16, And it shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shalt call me no more Balai. Balai basically means Lord. Ishai means husband. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And it goes on, but I will not begin to do an expository message on Hosea chapter 2, although it's a tremendous chapter. And it emphasizes, for example, in verse 23, And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Now the whole theme in Hosea chapter 2, without getting into it right now, is about the earth and God making a covenant with the nation of Israel in the last days. The word Jezreel is used, which means it will be sown of God. And it says in verse 22, And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, which is referring in this case to Israel that is now become sown of God before they were sown of self. In the deception of self-worship, but God, who works all things after the good counsel of his will, according to his good pleasure, has brought even their rebellion to the place where it is broken and his purpose has burst forth upon the history of the world. Out of the shell of hopelessness has burst forth the blossom of God's glorious bride that the world in its blindness did not even perceive was all happening through all the things that were allowed to take place throughout the history of the world. Not going to go into anything more than that right at this time. 
And then today, Thursday, I received Luke chapter 8. And I will read this chapter, and I found myself weeping towards the last part of the chapter with a broken heart of love. God moved on me that way as I was reading this chapter. I don't even understand fully why. But I felt the Spirit of God melting and breaking my heart as I read about the various stories of deliverance in the last, not stories, actual historical accounts of deliverance in the last part of Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read Luke chapter 8 first, as it's the theme chapter. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and a certain woman which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Jonah the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked a moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others fell on good ground, and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to others in parables that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell upon among thorns are they, which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he 
commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had only one daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him, and, Jesus, and a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him, and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied Peter, and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee, and pressed thee, and thou sayest, Who touched me? Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Whilst she yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished 
But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. This is Luke chapter 8. And after a long reading like that, I'm going to just take a brief drink of water. In the first three verses of Luke chapter 8, we find that those that ministered to Christ were those that experienced great deliverance in their lives. For example, verse 2 says, And a certain woman which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. That was one of the ones that ministered unto Christ. And there were others that ministered unto Christ of their substance. I believe that there are many in our midst that need to know the delivering power of Jesus Christ. There are those that have spent all their woman like the, like the woman that touched the hem of his garment. They have tried for years and years to find healing and deliverance, and it hasn't happened. But this is the time of the year of Jubilee, according to all calculations, that is coming up this fall. And it is also the appointed time of many to touch the hem of his garment and to be made whole after years of being in bondage. I'm not going to share about the woman that touched them of his garment too much right now. I want to emphasize that those that minister unto Christ are often those that have known the desperation of bondage and captivity for years and then have experienced the blessing of being set free and they know the greatness of God's mercy and of his love to them. And so, because they've known that, and the emptiness of the world that they entered into that they thought would fulfill their lives, they are totally dead to this world and find their full identity, their fellowship, their intimacy filled in Christ. He's the one that satisfies. And they find their whole life given to the one whom they love. Like the woman that broke the alabaster blocks of all her years living at the feet of Christ. The one who knew the greatness of his mercy so that she wept at his feet and wiped his feet with the tears that ran down her cheeks onto her hair with such thankfulness and humility. And so we read in verse 4, and when much people were gathered together, were come unto him of every city. And this is the story of the parable of those that hear the word of God, but they don't receive it into their heart. God does not give more blessings of revelation unto those who have closed themselves to the truth of God that he has already given. This is clear from verse 10 in Luke chapter 8, which says, and he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. They had abundance of truth. They heard the word of God in the synagogues. And here the Messiah was before him, and they were filled with only an outward desire of wanting to see miracles. They hadn't come under the fear of God with conviction for the condition of their own heart when they saw the demonstration of the power of God before their very eyes. They were not responding to the measure of light they had. And so they did not understand what Christ was talking about. But he revealed it unto his disciples. 
what the meaning of this was. They are representations of various conditions of the heart that stop people from really receiving what they hear into their heart. Oh, it goes in one ear and out the other intellectually with their mind, but it never was embedded in their heart. And there's a number of different conditions that cause this. The first one is demonic hindrance by the heart having grounds for such influence of demonic influence to blind one from understanding the word of God and really having it hit home into their heart. The failure to understand the word of God because of being blinded by a demonic influence has its root in a heart that has grounds for those demonic influences to blind them and to blind the understanding of the heart, which requires a soft heart. There are various verses in the scripture that point this out. Because of the hardness of their heart, they did not understand the word of God it describes in Ephesians and in other various passages. The other condition of the heart was that the heart has no root because it is shallow and hard. And the reason it is shallow and hard is because its identity is not, its rooting is not in God, its identity is still very much in various other things. Could be the pride of our roots is the key motivating factor. The word of God says those that are truly born of the spirit of God are not born of the will of man, nor of blood, but of God. If we are alive unto the opinions of others, which is the will of man, or to our upbringing, and that is the main thing that our identity is in, instead of our relationship with God, then we have not died unto those things. And those things cause our heart to be shallow, and hard towards the truth so that we cannot root our identity in a relationship with God. And so with joy we receive the word of God, but there's no ability to put our roots into our relationship with God. The result is that when trials and tribulations come, we are offended, possibly even at God, or offended because our identity in these other things is challenged, and we refuse to let that go. And then the third condition that stops people from receiving or hearing the word of God into their very heart is that their heart is distracted by temporal motivations for fulfillment through wealth that allows them to have those fulfillments but requires their energy and their time so that the top priority for giving of one's life to the kingdom of God is robbed and removed over a period of time. Such are not open to allowing that word that they receive to germinate in their hearts and come to fruition. Over time, it is choked by other priorities, self-seeking priorities, which are the loves of this present life. Whether we are motivated to please our wife and do all of these things and work hard to please our wife or the pleasures of this world, they come in many forms. But the root of it is this. As Christ, as the Holy Spirit says in 1 John, 
Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. And then we have the right condition of the heart that is described in Luke chapter 8. And this right condition of the heart we find described in verse 15. And part the last part of verse 14. Well, actually not. It's verse 15. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience or perseverance. The secret to having a heart that can receive the seed of the word of God so that it bears fruit is that our heart is honest and it is good. An honest heart is a heart that is open to the truth. A good heart is a heart that is dead to the motivations of self-worship in its many deceptive and delusional forms. Self-righteousness. Trusting in our own sufficiency. Thinking that it is within ourselves to be acceptable before God. is an evidence of pride. It is an evidence that we do not have the genuine fear of God. Because the secret to abiding in intimacy with God is found in that state of the heart that constitutes the genuine fear of God in one's heart. The genuine fear of God is what? It is basically this. It is an openness to the truth, which is the first part, the honesty. The openness is part of that. But what is the truth? Ultimately, the source of all truth finds its source in the ultimate source of truth, who is God. And so let me define truth. Truth is described in various dictionaries as that which is real. Basically, that's the root of it. You look up what real and reality means in various dictionaries, and this is basically what it is. That which is unchangeable, indestructible, and everlasting. So what is the constitution of reality that has such a quality? Remember, the name of God is basically, in essence, describing reality. When it says the name, the sacred name of God that the Jews use the word Lord for instead of uttering that name, it's known as Yehovah or Yahweh depending on the vowel structure of the word. But basically, that word means the self-existent one. It is basically defined in another way in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament as ahiyah, asherahiyah, which means, that's the Hebrew pronunciation, I am that I am. Ahiyah, asherahiyah. Christ said, I am that I am. He is describing himself as the very source and essence of all reality. And the constitution of that reality is love. And so I must define love. Because the word of God is clear in the Greek New Testament 
that the ultimate form of love is agape love. There's the soulish love, which is filial, and the sexual love, which is eros. But the highest form of love is agape. And the best way to describe this agape love is that it can include feelings, but it is far beyond feelings. It's not just filial, emotional, uh, psyche love. It can include that, but it is ultimately a quality of being that out of its own total freedom chooses always the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal fulfillment of self-gratification. It is a choice towards the highest lasting good towards creation to bring creation onto the highest lasting good, who is God. It is a choice that does all things onto the highest lasting good, who is God, towards its relationship and choices with all. This love that I'm describing has two ultimate aspects in its choice, which is this highest lasting good. The first is that it has total integrity. This love has such integrity that it is innate in its self-originating choice as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to love. And if it wasn't that, it could never choose the highest lasting good over more any more immediate choice, which would imply that it has corruption in it. But the love of God is so pure that it has no corruption in it. It has total integrity, integrity and purity to judge the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to this love. This is the per- protective aspect of the being of God known as the holiness of God. The understanding of the word holiness, if you look it up in the vines, is mainly an ultimate purity that will separate and cut off all that is impure. This love has this integrity and this integrity of love is the holiness of God. It is the foundation from which can spring forth love in creative expression that can ever enlarge in greater and greater realms of creativity without corruption. It is that quality that can only hold ultimate, unlimited, lasting, everlasting power without corruption and therefore in a state of goodness. For anything that would be less would have corruption in it and therefore would not be good. So the holiness of God is the foundation from which springs forth creativity in God or the expression of God's love. And this is represented in mathematics and in electricity as the negative symbol, a symbol of foundation, a symbol of cutting off. And it is from this that there is formed the ultimate plus, which is the symbol of the cross in electricity and in mathematics. This is the symbol of a love that is so pure that without inviolating the integrity of his love, he would have such love that he would take judgment. God would take judgment upon himself and be able to absorb it for his creation so that he can assure to creation destiny, everlasting destiny to all those that would repent and receive his atoning provision of mercy upon the cross through Jesus Christ. All of his creation that does not directly sin against the direct presence of his blessing through temptation has wandered through indirect, through temptation has sinned against God through being indirectly tempted in the physical realm, can receive through his outpouring of his blood in his physical body on the cross 
out of love for you as an individual who suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, you can receive forgiveness and assurance of forgiveness if you repent and ask him for mercy because you've truly seen that he is God. It is only these two aspects in the being of God that God's love could have the power to have such that his love is so pure that it does not tolerate sin and yet that without violating his love, he can show mercy and therefore forgive you. Only those two aspects of God's being are the evidence of what is ultimately trustworthy. There is nothing that can be more trustworthy to contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it. If God could not assure the destiny to creation, it would imply that he was less than perfect. But he works all things in creation after the good pleasure of his will onto his ultimate purpose, which is to bring forth a corporate bride in total intimate union with him. And we are simply in the process like a plant growing that breaks out of its seed. And as it grows, it is confined by the shuck through time. But there is a process hidden within. And eventually, there's the folding of the shuck away to bring a greater process, ultimately onto an ultimate process where the shuck falls off and the corn is glowing in the sun. And likewise, God's ultimate purpose is this corporate bride that will shine before him. And in this passage in Luke here, there's a description of the state of our being towards God that allows us to be able to hear the word of God. And it's described, as I've been mentioning in verse 15, but that on a good, but that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bear fruit. Honesty is openness to who God is in these two aspects of his being, Openness to recognize his holiness, not be offended at his holiness. It's because of his holiness. That is the integrity of his love. That there is the consequences of suffering because of our rebellion against God in this world. But many are offended at the consequences of God's holiness in their lives personally and in the suffering they see around them. Instead of recognizing the greatness of God's love, that he would require such consequences. And the good heart is the broken heart before God that recognizes the greatness of his mercy, that he is good, that recognizes the holiness of God is good and that it must ultimately be recognized in that he is merciful. They may not recognize this that I'm sharing with you intellectually, but that is the process that's going on in the heart. There is the recognition subconsciously in many from their heart of the holiness of God and of their unworthiness of his mercy. And at the same time, that there must, that this God is so good that he must be so ultimately trustworthy that he can actually forgive us because he himself, without violating the integrity of his love, has absorbed judgment upon himself on the cross through Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of the one true God to rule in the time and space realm. The Father is the expression of the one true God and conscious personality that rules beyond the time and space realm that sees the end from the beginning. The Son is the expression of the one true God into time and space, ruling in this realm to relate with creation. And the Holy Spirit is God in omnipresence, filling all things, who can be in personage every word at the same time, even invisible personage, as the Father and as the Son. And so God would not be almighty unless he could be 
in the th in personage in these three ultimate aspects of existence beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. And he's saying here in this passage, the good heart speaks of the soil that is soft, that is broken in the recognition and reception of the goodness of God. It recognizes that God must be ultimately good and merciful. And we go on to see this description of the condition of the heart that is required to receive the word of God and to have perseverance until it brings forth fruit in one's life. Described in the next verse when Christ says, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. And it's in relation to this statement on the candle and light that he says the next statement. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. So the secret is in what he's sharing about the candle. I'm just going to take a brief drink of water here. So we look at this now, and I, and I put this here. This is illustrated by being open to the light so that we do not hide the light. In other words, if we're really open to the light, the awareness of truth in us will not, will not cover it up, will not cover it up and, and so that we're not open. So that we do not hide the light that is in us, but let it expose all false motives. Then light will actually be received into our heart without hiding it, so that it will shine forth in our life before others. The secret is in a true turning in our heart to choose to recognize God for who he really is in his holiness and in his mercy. That is what, in essence, the fear of God is. It is not an intellectual acknowledgement. It is far more a deep turning in the heart that chooses to recognize the holiness of God and not to be offended at it, but to be humbled under it in the recognition of the goodness of God that is contained therein, for only such holiness can be trustworthy to contain unlimited power in life. And it is that recognition from the heart of the holiness of God out of which springs the recognition of the greatness of his mercy to us as we recognize that it is not within ourselves to have righteousness before God but to recognize our dependency is on him. too much to share the mystery of how there was the secret of abiding in the fear of God before the world was created by the angels and various beings. But there was both these two aspects. There was the recognition of the utter purity of his love and of the utter creativity coming out of that love And I won't go into that. I wrote about it in my book, which hasn't been printed yet, of course. I'm still writing it. Now, in this passage, Christ is saying basically this. We must, when we see the word of God, when we hear it spoken like they did in the synagogues, we must be brought to a place of recognizing and all we are hearing, the, the true state of the being of God, which is love. It is this recognition of the negative and plus 
which releases electricity. And we know that in electricity what is happening is that there's electrons going at a high speed around the nucleus of the atom, forming a hard shell. And it takes the connection with the negative and the positive to break that hard shell of our heart of pride, of self-righteousness, of self-sufficiency. They would think that before God, somehow, we can keep the Ten Commandments out of mere performance and be accepted by God. When we do that, basically, we make the Ten Commandments an idol so that we are worshiping the Ten Commandments in place of a genuine heart of love before God. And the deception is that that is a state of self-worship, of pride, where we are glorying in our own self-sufficiency because we've not entered into the genuine recognition of who God is in his holiness and in his mercy that would cause us to humble ourselves and circumcise our heart so that we turn with all our heart before God and do not trust in ourselves for anything and come into a love relationship with God. So we're to take heed how we hear. That we never allow a presumptuous state of pride, but that our heart is in that place where the shell is broken, where there's softness and receptivity to the watering that comes through the word of God, to the light that comes through the word of God. Now, after Christ says this, the next verse says this, then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, my brother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Here again, there is a clear illustration on what we've just been sharing. And that is that Christ's identity was not in his natural relationship with his mother and his brother. He was totally dead onto that and alive onto his relationship with God the Father being the one true God, but also with those whose heart was totally knit in love with God, who were doing God's will like Mary Magdalene, out of whom were seven devils cast, who had nothing left because she died to the world. She had tried to find fulfillment in the world and entered into captivity because of it, even into the bondage of demonic oppression. But she was set free. And now, she knew her full identity in a relationship with her creator. The various examples that we have in the last part of Luke, or pardon me, the last part of Luke. I don't know if that happened because I'm learning the Hebrew language or what. Are of deliverance. We have the boat in the midst of the storm. And Christ is sleeping in the midst of the storm and his disciples. What does he say to his disciples when it looks like they're going to sink? He gets up after a nice calm sleep in the middle of a storm and he says, where is your faith? He expected them to have the authority in them to command those waves. Now, I don't know if they were already sent out to cast out demons where they returned to the Lord and rejoiced yet or not. It could well be that this already was the case where he said, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and on scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And yet here they are. And he says, where is your faith? Now, the word faith is the word pistis in Greek, which means persuasion. Persuasion in who I am. Persuasion in the authority that there is in me. What causes that persuasion? 
in who God is, that causes the inner man to rise up that is abiding in God with authority, that has life within the words that bring results. It is an intimate relationship of prayer that is continually reciprocative of who God is in these two aspects, the holiness of God and the mercy of God. Christ even said, as I live by the Father, so you will eat and live by me. Even in the triunity of the one true God, the secret of that unity, which is only one God, not three gods, is in the secret of the fear of God. The word of God says, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and to them he will show his covenant. It also says, he that abides in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the Almighty. Now, the fear of God is the secret of abiding in God. This is clear from Isaiah 33, which describes the Messiah and says of him, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. This, when we treasure who God is, when we exercise the fear of God, the recognition of our heart, the turning of our heart and the recognition of the total purity of the being of God's love and holiness out of which springs his love and created creativity and such great mercy that he's become a perfect atoning sacrifice for us. And we are reciprocative of that. We are breaking the hardness of the heart as it says in the word of God in Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. True, genuine conversion is the breaking of the hard shell of the heart out of the recognition of who God is, which is the choice to fear God from the heart. That is why it says in Acts that I perceive that all that fear God and live a righteous life are accepted of God because in the process of fearing God, we are accepted of God because in that process, there is the experience of genuine rebirth by the Spirit of God that makes us his children. So there is within us this seed of faith which involves our soul in a state of selfless trust before God that is held in that state of selfless trust by the abiding of the Spirit of God with our soul and spirit that does not allow our soul and spirit to collapse into a state of deceptive self-worship like a fist instead of a hand of surrender. That is why it says in 1 John, that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It is our faith that is born of God because it is what brings the Spirit of God to abide in our soul and spirit in a new nature. And in this passage of Scripture, Christ expects us to exercise the authority that we have in us when we build up our inner man through this reciprocation that takes place out of the fear of God by waiting on him and spending quality time seeking him. That is why Caleb and Jacob, pardon me, Caleb and Joshua had such authority because they were of another spirit, because their soul and spirit was conformed unto the image of God, because they spent much time waiting on God, seeking him. So their inner man was built up with authority. In this passage of scripture, as we go on, we also see the devils that were cast out of this person. And he wanted to stay with Jesus the rest of his life. He was such a changed soul, like Mary Magdalene. And the Lord tells him to go and give his testimony to others and not be with him. How wonderful. A testimony this is of deliverance. But those that were about this man had fear. Their fear in the heart is also something that stops one from receiving the word of God. 
But what is the fear, root of fear? Fear is basically consciousness of loss. These people were fearful probably of demons possessing them. But why were they fearful of demons possessing them? Because there was a deeper fear that they were not willing to give up things in their lives. They were not open to the light. They had such a strong identity that they were Gadarenes that they couldn't give that up to follow Jesus. They had to put that identity first before God. And that they didn't want to lose. And that was the root of another fear, the fear of these demons. The word of God says that perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment or is uptight. And the reason there's uptightness is because there is a consciousness of loss. And the only thing that can conquer that consciousness of loss, which causes uptightness, it causes self-grasping, in other words, so that we're sweating from our brow, grasping onto our own life so fearful we're going to lose it. Instead of letting go and letting God have his way. What breaks that is the consciousness of completeness in God. That's what breaks that vacuum within our heart that is like a black hole in outer space that gives us motives that are destructive motives because they are not choosing the highest lasting good. So God calls us to recognize that he first loved us, to recognize the greatness of his mercy that can only be recognized out of recognizing the greatness of God's holiness without rebellion against it, rather humbling ourselves and recognizing the goodness of God. And then we have the historical account of the woman who touches the hem of his garment and is made whole. And he says unto her daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. In every one of these cases, the Lord is encouraging the people. The man whose daughter was about to die, he commands him, don't fear, believe. Be persuaded in who I am, that I have the power. And he was. And so he received the one that was dead back to life. That was Jairus. May God speak to each of us that we would be in a place with him where we would not fear but believe. When we find ourselves in circumstances where it seems like there's no hope, like death is sealed over, like the stone is sealed over the grave, remember after three days that Christ rose again because he'd never lost faith in the Father. His spirit, his soul was in a state of total purity of selfless trust. Oh yes, he experienced being the forsaking of God's presence, of his judgment, but he never, he's God. His oneness therefore could never be broken. He was in a state of total selfless trust and that's trust is what allowed resurrection to come through. As it says in Romans 1.4, by the resurrect, by the spirit, that Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. Romans 1 4. By the resurrection from the dead through the spirit of holiness. That's what it says there. And Christ's spirit of holiness was a state that was in total union, union throughout the trial with the Father. They released that judgment of death upon him to be fully absorbed and resurrect and also for him to absorb it 
and annul it because he rose from the dead as well. God is saying to his people that he wants us to be like the prodigal son, not like the self-righteous one, but the prodigal son. It will be sown of God, Jezreel. That's how the Lord describes Israel after they come through the valley of Acre and are cornered by his judgment. And they recognize that they are nobody apart from his mercy. They are called Jezreel. It will be sown of God. And remember, I had Luke 11, and that was on the Lord's Prayer. It is as we hallow the Father, which is the beginning of prayer, that we can enter into the Spirit to pray for all of the other things that come after hallowing his name. But the most important thing is to have that right recognition of God, that hallowing of his name. and a wholeheartedness, an importunity that gives evidence that there is wholeheartedness in our prayers. Then we will be able to bring deliverance to the captives. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to sharing again.